Welcome to Inheritance from Mother Tongue. I'm Samuel, and I'll be your host. I'd like to dedicate this episode to Laura Farrow, my cousin, who's currently in hospice care and whose voice we'll be hearing in a later episode. Lots of love to you, Laura. Today, we have a very lightly edited conversation with Jason Tandababiana that took place on October 4th, about four and a half months ago, but still seems relevant today. I want to thank Jason for his time, and I want to thank Tristan Paxton for the music, Mike Gagne for the art, Cody Robertson for the editing and production, and Yu Kitamoto for the fried chicken and presents. In the episode description is a detailed list of topics because we kind of bounce all over the place. But in brief, we talk about health, wealth, language, and death. Thank you for listening. So please uh, join me in welcoming Jason Tan de Bibiana. Uh, uh, <laughs> hey Sam and all the uh, podcast fans. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? Good. Good memory of of the the MC4 mixtapes. Kind of like lost the track lists over the years and the switch from having like. And those like folders of CDs to like iTunes playlists to like now just everything streaming, sadly. But I, I feel like I could like think of many of the songs that may have been on that. I remember the um, the CDs you're talking about because they were like back in the day, you'd buy like a, a tower of like 100 CDRs and they'd be like, I don't know, I, I forget like per piece, they'd be like 20 cents per piece or whatever, 50 maybe. And then you could also get like the CDRWs for rewritability. And then somehow my brother and I had had those like had these like fancy fake vinyl um, veneer CDRs for some reason for special mixtapes. Yeah, that I mean, it made it so much more special though. I mean, you get a, a CD written with like written on with a felt pen or whatever that's one thing but then to get this beautiful like it looks like you'd, you'd had this like pressed for me it was what it felt like you're just just getting something ah, that like yeah. that so jason uh is in new york now and he's been in new york throughout the ongoing pandemic uh we'll have to talk mm. about that at some point but before we get to that because i said we wanted to ease into this 
I want to talk a little bit about basketball because the last time I saw Jason, uh, it was in January and it was my birthday. And uh, he took me to a Brooklyn Nets Toronto Raptors game at Barclays Center. So what are you thinking about basketball right now, Jason? Nets, Raptors, or whatever's happening in the final? I guess in the on the with the prompt of that we're uh, continue to be in a ongoing global pandemic. Um, that was so the January game around your birthday was uh, did the Raptors win? I feel like we always have like a tough time except in this playoffs. I think they lost against the, the Nets. They, they've lost. I've seen the Raptors lose to like the, you know, seemingly like no star power Brooklyn Nets for like on a regular basis over the past few years. So that yeah. might've been one of them, but that was a fun experience for sure. And then um, the last trip I took before, like last time I left New York, basically before um, the pandemic stuff really hit, was for a work trip in like early March. And I went to New Orleans, which was a super fun trip. And then somehow like I'm on, I think cause one time I went for like a, a promo day, which was like group sales for like the Raptors game, like, like just trying to get like all the Canadians to go. But I'm on like the mailing list for, I guess what would be the account sales people for the Mets. <laughs> and like, Maybe like probably like a month ago, I got an email, like a seemingly personalized email from like the sales rep who's like, Hey, Jason, like, you know, like, like we're really excited for the 2021 season to come back. Like you should snag your season tickets before uh, too long, which I get is probably a thing. Cause people are probably trying to buy out like last year. They were like, Oh, Kyrie, Katie, um, we want to see the, the nets, but um yeah, I don't know, the idea of buying season tickets to watch basketball in the arena for this <laughs> right start now. of like the December, January season. I don't know, maybe that's like a good, maybe that's some people, some prospectors are like really, that's a good investment right now. And then they'll like, a year from now, people will be paying hundreds of dollars to see Katie and Curry. I don't know. And they'll be, be sad because they won't be able to see the Raptors. Yeah. Yeah. Um, those are my those are my uh, wide ranging pandemic basketball thoughts, and then um, we're in between as we are as we are recording, as they say. <laughs> um, yeah, we're we're uh, in between the end of the NBA finals, which um, have been fun, and then the like uh, the the Heat like losing all their all those injuries. Um, in between like game threes night. So yeah. it's kind of a bummer. It's such a bummer. And I, yeah, I just feel like, I feel like like the, cause like, I feel like and the league has like had these interesting moments where like, you know, the, with Rudy Gobert and like that, like that felt like it made like the United States stop and then different, like some good, some like eh, moments around like black lives matters. And over the past few months and sort of feel, it feels like it's like going out with a whimper. I don't know. What are you, how are you feeling about it? Are I you watching? I totally can't remember if you're that. watching much right now. It's like I know you and you're watching. We talked after the Nuggets, um, but I don't know if you have any interest in the Lakers and heat culture and things. Or? Heat culture, not just <laughs> the heat. Saying, the heat, yeah. heat culture. Uh, yeah. I have a big interest in heat culture. Uh, I've yeah. followed it for years, um, and I'm a personal 
fan of Jimmy Butler because I like yeah. a good villain. You know, I, I'm compelled yeah. by a good villain. Uh, but is you also a fan? Yeah, huge fan of Jimmy Butler. Actually, yeah, uh, I figured. Yeah, I figured. Yeah. That's that's her type. <laughs> I think. Uh, yeah. Kind of operatic. She always says he he seems like he could be a RuPaul uh, contestant because he's got right. that kind yeah, of yeah. big personality yeah. and showmanship. And uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, actually, both of us were kind of kind of excited to watch the Heat go against the not the Lakers. I mean, yeah, the Lakers. It, when you say it's going out with a whimper, I, I I really am disappointed by how easily the Lakers march through the playoffs because it's a really goofy team. Right. And uh, yeah. I thought they'd have more trouble. I'm, I can't believe that they're just. It seems like they're just. I mean, are they going to sweep? They're going to win in four or five games. Seems like for the finals, and they were never really seriously challenged in any series leading up to this. Yeah, I uh, should have been late. Should have been the Raptors. Yeah, I mean, it should have been the Raptors. I not just as like obviously a Raptors fan, but I just I don't know. I've, I've been obviously listening to all my Raptors biased media sources. <laughs> But I, I do feel like our front line would have been a better matchup and more interesting matchup. Um, yeah, it just makes me feel like it would have been like I, I know the All Star game is sort of this, but it, like it would be fun to like mix and match, like because I, I feel like so much of the the playoffs have been matchups, right? Yeah. So I feel like it would just be fun to be like, all right, can we can we somehow like get. Giannis back in there just for the series. <laughs> or, yeah, put Giannis on the like heat Marcus for now. Will, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Because it, it's, or, I mean, it's ridiculous watching the Heat versus the Lakers. It looks like a yeah. JV team versus varsity team because the Lakers are yeah. so much bigger. Yeah. Who is your, who is your number one, who would you pick as your like number one defensive stopper for AD and then your number one defensive stopper for LeBron? Because I thought, I thought Bam would be, like really well matched against AD, but obviously not, you know, oh, I, hope, I hope he comes back for another game or two, but cause I, I just want to see more of that matchup and see if that, if that is like a good, if Bam can I just feel like the heat has like Bam has to do so much on their yeah. defense for them. It's hard for him to like just focus on, on that one point, but yeah. Who, yeah. Do you have a, who's good against AD? I, I feel a, like Giannis is, uh, I know he's more of like yeah. a help side defender generally, but just like in terms of, having a body that can match up with AD's extendo extendo yeah. arms and everything. Like, Yanis is one of the few who can compare. And then, yeah, the Raptors would have a bunch of people who would be a not bad matchup. You'd get Mark on them. You'd have Surge on them sometimes. Uh, that wouldn't be too bad. You don't think Mark's too slow, though? You don't think Mark's too lumbering? Mark is very slow, but I mean, obviously he's he so smart. In a great way, but, like, yeah. He can yeah. funnel him the right way, at least. Like, sure, he'll get b- blown by every once in a while, but he can, you know, pester him a little bit, funnel him the right way, and then yeah. the Raptors love to help so much, so there'll, there'll be other bodies there. And yeah. uh, But he's gone now. Mark is gone. Did you hear? Barcelona. Is I've, it true? Yeah, that's, I've heard the I've heard the unconfirmed, soon to be confirmed, probably. Um, yeah, that's sad, too. I mean, that's, like, very happy for him as a... A human and um but yeah i mean it makes sense i think that's great i think that's a good move especially with the uncertainty with the pandemic i would want to be yeah. closer to home too but yeah. i'm gonna miss it yeah, i have no idea what, i have no idea what that i assume it's like a pretty high level of competition but i think it's the um, best team in the i think they're consistently yeah. maybe the best team in the uh 
ACB or ABC, whatever that league is called. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, Just a sec. Yeah. Oh. Sorry, I didn't quite catch that. Could you please repeat it? <laughs> Shut up, Siri. <laughs> uh, have you been playing basketball at all uh, since this all went down? Um, the, the, all I've done is, um, Bandad and I shot around, I want to say like two months ago, maybe like a month and a bit ago. I know in like different parts of Canada, they like closed parks, right? Like, or closed like playgrounds for yep. that as like a COVID hazard. And then they literally took like most of the, um, hoops down or, oh. and, or like fenced off, um, courts, which was like so sad. And it, and that's like went on for months too. And, um, and then like additionally upsetting was, um, the, not where Van and I played, but there's like a, a school and then the, uh, uh, basketball and playground, basketball court and playgrounds, like very close to me, um, that they fenced off. And it's also beside a police precinct. So the police just started using it as their parking lot because they probably didn't want people to burn their cars down. <laughs> <laughs> conversation but it was just it was just like the visual of it i mean like we are we took the hoops away we've locked we fenced off this playgrounds like kids can't play on this playground you can't play basketball and also the cops are just going to park their cars here that is so depressing that is a real um, paved paradise and put up a parking lot situation yeah i think i was trying to say it was like finally eventually like maybe in june or july like they started putting the hoops back up and then Vanda and i went and it was still like this uncertain period where um, we were watching like maybe there was like a three on three game, like on the courts beside us. And I think like half the people were wearing masks and half were not so <laughs> my mind. It was like, instead of shirts versus skins, it was like masks. Versus masks. <laughs> and then, and then the two of us, like, we just like spent like an hour shooting around, but I think both of us were like, I wish we could play just, yeah. just looking longingly. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. so hard because uh, I think it was actually similar in Toronto. We had um, uh, traffic cones. People, the the parks department came around, and I think it was parks, and they put traffic cones in the hoops and then wrapped them in plastic. Uh, and oh, that is a that I have, I'm surprised I didn't see photos of that because that is like also that's just a bizarre visual. It's not nice. It's really visually jarring and unpleasant. Wrapped it in, plas- in plastic wrap. Yeah, like, like basically. Like really la- wrapped it a lot, so it was difficult to get it out. And then I'm not sure how long that lasted because there's this one court that you. I have some great pictures of you playing there, actually, Christy Pitts, where where I used to live. Yeah. And uh, the basketball community is really strong there, and uh, they didn't stand for the courts being shut down for too long. They, I, I'm not sure if they took the the traffic cones out themselves or if they were taken out, but the games picked up again there quite quickly and uh, right. people were playing almost no one was wearing a mask uh, and you were getting two two quarts of fives going usually and uh, yeah. a bunch of people waiting and then coming in so it was really uh, a lot of commingling of, of breath on that court right right and I uh, guess like from what I know of Christy Pitts, not not to excuse or like again not wanting to judge anyone, but I feel like it's like the strength of that basketball community is like at least if somebody potentially had a, you know, got sick or whatever, like word would spread. 
in a way that like another transient basketball court might be really difficult to. That's such a good point because it, it's a community that talks and knows each other. Like, yeah, yeah. The people who go there know each other. They're all, you know, we're all connected on Instagram. We all, all follow yeah. Splash TO. Shout out to Splash TO, uh, Toronto's greatest local hoops Instagrammer. Oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah. their bylaw officers would come around and try to enforce social distancing on the court. And I actually right. saw one time a, a showdown between players and, and bylaw mm-hmm. officials. And I think the players, you know, won. I mean, won. <laughs> they, get, they got to keep playing. They got to keep doing what they were doing. Uh, but I really wanted to play there, but I, it just seemed too, too risky COVID-wise. Uh, but yeah. I've missed it so much. Yeah, I think the only other thing I want to say is like that. Um, and again, so like our other friend, like Jake's, Jake Sticka, his partner who works in for some sort of like parks department in BC. I know she had to do some of like the roping off of playground at one point and was obviously was super sad about it. Um, but I just am like, I don't know, it feels like a bad joke, but the like the meeting in which they were like, let's just put traffic cones and plastic wrap them like that's the best solution right because <laughs> they could have they they could have you know they could have done it in yard and like take the hoops off but i guess they were like made the cost benefit of like we have easier access to cones and plastic wrap like that's more cost effective than maybe there weren't enough like you know drills to go around to like take the hoops off. that's know. crazy yeah that meeting I would love to be a fly on the wall in yeah. that meeting. How are we yeah. going to stop these people from using this park? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, I want to jump into... Okay, sorry. My mind's like just going to silly places. Are you back, like... on, not back on basketball? Because I wanted to no, jump I'm into on work. The hoops. I'm on the hoops. You're on the hoops. I'm on the hoops of like how to prevent like, like what other ways, silly ways, did they think about to like prevent people from playing basketball at I mean, also, anyway, it's just... Okay, we can move yeah, on. <laughs> yeah, it's just so selective in what is targeted for this kind of enforcement, too. But we don't have to get into that too much. We're going to get into that, actually, for selective enforcement, because we're going to talk about your work a little bit, if that's okay with you. Uh, do you mind telling everyone what you do? Sure. Um, I assume you're talking about... Uh, about... Um, criminal legal system and mental health and substance use work. Yes, exactly. Work, which is, um, which has been, um, yeah, it's been interesting lately. I mean, it's been, yeah, it's just been a lot, but, um, but, um, been working at this organization here in New York for like two years now. And it's, you know, before I, before I ended up in New York and various things, but, um, it was kind of like, I think it made sense after studying public health and a lot of mental health research and then working in Toronto for a couple of years and um, working like at St. Mike's Hospital in Toronto and uh, working with a bunch of community mental health teams and programs that were trying to support people living with um, mostly serious mental illness, um, support their like housing and mental health and psychiatric needs. And often those people, um, yeah, I've been reflecting on a ton of it lately, but a lot of, you know, a range of the clients of those teams and patients were sometimes getting arrested for things and like cycling in and out of 
um, the psychiatric hospitals in Toronto and um, and the you know GTA and and the jails and stuff like that. So yeah, I've been I've been working at this uh, um, working now more closely on those like intersecting issues um, in uh, New York now for the past two years. And I feel like I'm getting exhausted talking about it because it's kind of, yeah, um, it's tough. Like, you know, every, every, everything that's been happening in the world and States and Canada too, for sure. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, there are not to like silver lining things, but there's like, there's opportunities. And I think there's like some potentially promising things happening in the space, but there's also just like a lot of terrible things and, harms happening at individual and systemic levels. But um, as like a rambling way, I guess, I guess why I'm still doing, why I'm interested in the work that I'm doing now and why I'm um, at least feel good about continuing to try and work in this area is, um, yeah, I think there's just because of how policing and jails and prisons and courts and um, the criminal legal system affect people's lives in general, but then uh, like, how people are criminalized around mental illness and substance use. Um, it's just one issue that I'm particularly interested in. There's like huge need, I think, an opportunity to try and um, change things in how those people's lives get wrapped up in these different systems. So yeah, I don't know. Ask me more questions if you want to talk more about it. I feel like I'm like definitely been burned out from that work, but um, there's, there are like interesting things happening and hopefully some good things happening. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't want to push you to talk about something that doesn't, you know, it doesn't make you happy to talk about right now. I just, two things. Yeah, one to go back to that. Well, like, yeah. I'm curious what you want to, wanted to ask. But, yeah. Well, but, yeah. one thing was at that Christie Pitts basketball court a while back, I had a conversation with someone we both know uh, and, and whose music we like Shad Canadian rapper Shad. And, uh, we ended up talking about Something, someone we both know and and like was like <laughs> a lot of people, I guess. Yeah, I, I, no, but like an understatement that was like we just, we like him. Yeah, He's, okay, uh, we're we're big fans. We're, we're we're two of the two of the biggest Shad fans out there, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and then you actually know him because the basketball now. We I, yeah know him very 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 slightly from uh, basketball <laughs> Christie Pitts, but we were talking somehow about the carceral system here um, in Canada. I, I don't know. I think I was telling him I have. A person who I've been working with uh, for a writing project, uh, who was in prison um, near Kingston, uh, here yeah. in Ontario, but has been transferred to, to Quebec near near Laval more recently to be closer to his family, and uh, I think that's probably why I started talking about it. And what Chad was saying was, well, he thinks that's going to be the last thing to to change. Like the incarcerated population is the last group of people who are going to get any kind of rights or anything like that because because they're really to an extent that I didn't realize before I started talking to to my friend Patrick uh, really quite voiceless in the world that we live in there's such tight restrictions on uh, communication in and out of prison mm-hmm. uh, so I just wanted to bring that up but what I wanted to ask you, Jason, was um, I think that abolition has come into, if not the the mainstream of, I mean, abolition has been a popular concept for 
what, 50 years in, in some circles in America and Canada. But uh, the term was used quite a lot during the latest Black Lives Matter protests. And I, I, I think that it penetrated through to some white people who'd been oblivious to that whole line of thinking up until this point. Do you have any thoughts about that? Um, yeah, totally. Um, I had like a bunch of thoughts around like snippets of things that you just shared too, which I will try and remember in order. Just, I mean, like the, the thought, Shad's thought about like, what's, is this the last like population space that's going to change? It's an interest, such an interesting thought. Um, and then, um, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll just like throw out my stray thoughts in some order, but, um, cause I know you've been, you've gone out in person to see, um, this person that you've been, this friend and someone that you've been writing with, right? Like you, yeah. you went out to see them in Kingston at some point, right now they're in Quebec and, um, just the communication things definitely like, I'm not as familiar with the whole like apparatus of things, but, um, there's there's definitely a couple of groups here in the states that I follow that like have looked look a lot at at because um, it's not you know I think I think there's a common maybe a somewhat more common narrative here in the states and probably in Canada that like private prisons are a bad thing and like mm. that's that's a bad thing but even like but that's actually like only a small percentage of of like the the jails and prisons in the states and like countries like there's still like I mean, it's weird, like, it's not public, I guess it's public prisons and jails, but it's like government run, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to like completely like privately operated. But um, then there's like all the all the apparatus, which which are just trying to run around about way to getting what you alluded to of like why communications is so difficult, right? Because like at different varying degrees, depending on different facilities, like they're charging for phone calls, they're charging for you know, any, any form of communication that someone might want to send mail to um, speak with someone. Right. And then, yeah, my other straight thought, I know we messaged about this, but, um, cause there was like a, there has, there was a bit of an interesting moment of like turning for the NBA players to like turn the lens on owners or just like NBA, um, fans or people in that world. And, uh, just thinking about, um, if they're the labor, like what are they advocating for? Right. And there's at least the, the one particular owner, Tom Gores of Detroit Pistons, who has some ownership stakes in like one of these, um, communication companies that, that is, uh, like gouging incarcerated people, um, for their phone calls and stuff. So to like get back to your other question, the other thought that I had was, was it was also, um, just Shad's thought about like why why would that be the case if if for incarcerated people to be like the last to sort of get change and justice and I wonder yeah just thinking about that like um, I think to go to your question about abolition I think there's a question of what do we as individuals or as like a society think like how think how how do we think people should be punished for their actions when they cause harm. Um, cause I think a big part of abolition is saying like, is not trying to say that like people cause harm, people do bad things. Right. But 
I think I, I think I would say like one of the underlying principles is like people should not be like locked in cages for that. Like there there's other forms of justice. Um, and that's kind of the extended conversation about abolition. Um, but yeah, it's for I wonder, yeah, I'm curious what if you had a more extended conversation with Chad about that, but I feel like it's like our ideas about punishment and then like the stigma around people and then um, I wonder if it's just also like the out of sight, out of mind thing, right? Yeah. Um, because when people get locked up, they're um, even if it's within the city, like it's it's just like can easily become invisible to the average person, and maybe the average person who's not like black, brown, or criminalized in, in other ways. But just just like physically, it, it just reminds me also about how where like urban and city and you know, planners chose to locate jails and prisons that just like they, there were decisions made about like where to locate um, psychiatric facilities, right? Just like out of sight, out of mind in different ways. Yeah. And um, yeah, I hope, I hope if you, I don't know if it's like a running theme, but I hope there, cause I just to go back to your question about what is abolition and you know, what do I think about it? Like definitely don't feel like the best person to answer that question. Cause I'm, I'm, I feel like relatively new to it and learning for sure, but it's been interesting seeing how like the threads of it picked of like kind of weave through different parts of my life um, and work and um, and yeah, I'm just I'm just like just want to learn more and also I think like the the stuff that I'm most interested in focused on or how it relates to my work or like my experiences with um, looking at mental health care and mental health system. Cause I think there's right now, there's a lot of calls to um, like for, you know, the police shouldn't respond to, to people in mental health crisis. Um, there should be alternate responders for 911 and, and alternate systems, which I completely support. And there's like a lot of my work right now. Um, but I'm also like thinking a lot about the ways that mental health and social work and psychiatry and other, um, the other systems also have elements of like policing and surveillance control. Yes. Um, and then the other part, which is, yeah, which is also super challenging, which is kind of like connects a bit to the next gen and work, um, are those like alternate systems of justice of like restorative justice or transformative justice or community accountability, which, um, is important to like everything from like big me too moments to like, cause people are like thinking about like, like Harvey Weinstein right now, like should he rot in jail and prison mm. for the rest of his life? I mean, um, to like the smaller, like everyday interactions we have with people and we like, um, cause harm and make mistakes and like try and apologize and fumble through that. So, mm. yeah. And uh, so those are a few, a few terms I I'd love to, I can maybe pull up a definition at some point and, and get, uh, you know, maybe an accepted definition for transformative justice and restorative justice, because these are big terms especially in i would say social justice circles um that again like abolition but maybe more slowly seem to be working their way maybe slightly mm -hmm. more yep. into the mainstream though it's also hard to tell because I, I i keep going more in the direction of these terms so i can't tell if i'm just falling further away from the mainstream or if the mainstream is, is coming and learning about these things too uh i, yeah, I did want to yeah. yeah same for you <laughs> I did want to just, 
You touched on next gen men. Uh, what is next gen men? Um, next gen men is a Canadian um, nonprofit community org that um, helped start um, with two friends. Is it six years? Coming up on six years very soon, but wow. um, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, time flies. Wow. Uh, non-pandemic years. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, we're, we're still going, even though I, I do uh, less these days, little like lots of behind the, behind the scenes and, and just like less of the actual work because we've got other people who spend more time supporting the, the org and the mission. But um, the goal of Next Gen Man is, has been to um, engage boys and men around issues around uh, masculinity and, and gender justice. And uh, like when we started it, it was kind of um, for the, the three of us who started it, Jake, Jamal and I, we had like different threads and experiences that brought us to it. But um, one thing that we've always, that we've always thought is, and it ended up with our silly name was um, like something that we didn't have when we were younger. Um, having spaces to uh, think, like just discuss openly, think critically around masculinity and just all the different messages that we've gotten um, about patriarchy growing up. And um, and so one of the core programs has always been doing like youth programming, usually as an after school thing. Um, somehow we've done it through uh, online over the past couple months, wow. which, has been, which has been really amazing. Um, and yeah, and just hopefully, you know, support, support um, younger boys and, and men and in, in also sort of coming to these ideas and having space and support to that. Um, yeah, that's my, that's my elevator pitch for Travis and said, wow. Thank you so much for saying that. <laughs> yeah. Jake Sticka, um, who we talked about earlier in the podcast, uh, another friend who plays basketball as well, and Jamal. Uh, yeah, and who were both best friends from basketball actually originally the basketball connection runs strong with with us yeah um i had a question i had a follow-up about that oh yeah was there a kind of come to jesus moment for you with regard to the patriarchy was there i mean it's a weird way to put it but was there something or were there maybe a number of times when you realized or became aware of unconscious biases or or were those yeah, or I, I don't even know if those are moments or you just notice them in retrospect once your beliefs have shifted. Uh, was there anything like that for you? <laughs> I like, I'm just like stuck on the cover of Jesus. <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, to be honest, I feel like there's definitely been some important ones, but I feel like there's just so many moments, like as, you, as I think you alluded to, but I think moments that some, some of which I recognize at the time, um, some formative experiences and some things that just like accumulate and like on it and oftentimes like probably missed when they happened or reflected back, um, reflected back, remembering them at a later time. But, um, and a lot, like once we started next gen and just being just like having that take up more of my mental energy and space, like, um, for sure, like that helps just, like for myself to look more closely at things. Mm. Um, but why, um, why Jake, Jamal and I connected or why we got, why we, 
at least for me, um, the entry point of why I wanted to start next round with, with those two guys was, um, was probably like most approximately was in when I was in Vancouver, um, for a few years before that in grad school. Um, one thing that I would, I was volunteering a couple hours a month, um, for most of my time with, um, this, uh, youth sexual health org, HIV and sexual health org called youth co, which was definitely a super formative experience and got to do, um, like really sex positive, harm reduction, anti-oppression focused sexual health education. Mm. And, um, and had like the supportive community of like fellow volunteers and staff and educators to like unlearn, learn and unlearn a lot of stuff about gender among other things. Cause you know, that was, that was woven through all the stuff we were trying to, um, teach about in our, in our workshops. Mm. And, um, and then the a couple months that I spent after finishing, uh, finishing grad school at, at UBC in Vancouver, doing an internship with the YMCA, um, down in, in Jamaica and Kingston, Jamaica, where I was, um, teaching sex ed, mostly to, mostly to boys and younger men. Um, and just having that space to like think and like see masculinity being produced and patriarchy produced in a different context. And then like seeing how it was relating to my experience in Vancouver and then coming back to Toronto. So I think all those ideas were swirling around for me um, when we got, when we had the opportunity to like start an extra men. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the other moments that were like important were just the more like personal ones, like in my relationships, relationship and relationships, um, being able to like have that lens to look at things. So, yeah. 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 It's interesting to me. One thing that struck me while you were talking was the, uh, I'm not sure if I'm projecting this or if this was your intention. Um, you were saying seeing, uh, these patriarchal dynamics in a slightly different context when you're in Jamaica. And that's interesting how, for me at least, how, how things can become visible when they're a little bit different. Like it, it, it can become recognizable. Your own, your own things can become visible. Your own, well, we could call them shadow, shadow elements if we want to go Jungian here. Um, how these things that are, we could also just call it the water, the water we swim in. The water we swim in becomes yeah. uh, perceptible once it's slightly different. Uh, and we can see it in yeah. a slightly different context. Is is that how you felt? Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting at it, putting of putting it. And I'm excited to like listen to more episodes of this as you talk to more people about just going back to like what what you're saying about um, wanting to look at these elements of Western quote unquote Western society, but um, and whether that's like the denial idea about denialism or um, just all these other elements of white supremacy, patriarchy, um, all the other isms in societies that we've, that you and I and others, like the water that we're in. Mm. Um, I guess it just made me think about, like, I'm not definitely trying to be mindful and thoughtful when I like look back on my experience. It's not like, I mean, on the one hand, like just being in a different environment did teach me a lot, but I, I don't want to fall into that thing of like, oh, I went to this other place and like, that was just like the place that helped me learn this thing. Right. Mm. Um, but 
the at least I think for myself, I'd say like I'd I think there's part of that in things I've experienced and just like more specifically like um, growing up in Canada and then um, growing up in Toronto or wherever, like even moving to different places in Canada, like seeing um, race and racism in different ways, like that revealed things to me, right? Like, um, and um, the like trips that I've made to Asia, like just like being around people that look like me, it's like, there's like this experience, right? And then it just like shifts things in you. Um, and it's again, not saying like that they're like, there's still like many different elements of like racism and white supremacy in Asian countries. Um, there's elements of, you know, of classism and racism and, and obviously patriarchy in, in Jamaica and other parts of the world. But I think just having like changing the water that we're in, I guess, mm -hmm. um, at least as if the one, if you're the one who's like trying to perceive it, like makes those things visible. So. You, you were kind of talking a little bit about um, seeing, uh, moving around Canada, seeing racism in different places here, being in Asia. And I, I actually want to go back to to the kind of name or, or general theme of the podcast, which is inheritance from mother tongue. And uh, I wanted to ask you how that phrase, I mean, yeah, I guess I want to ask you how that phrase hits you what you how you feel about your inheritance um it's maybe too broad of a question but if there's anything you want to say there i'd love to hear it um well firstly like mother tongue is like a difficult one for me because I grew up speaking english um my parents my mom and dad still spoke english to each to us my my brother and i and to each other um even though our mother tongues and their mother tongues were not English. Um, but sort of like in their relationship and then come being in Canada, I, I think English became the default. Um, oh, interesting question. There's, there's too many threads to pick up on. Okay. So, um, well, I guess let me, I'll just kind of start from trying like, trace back the, the origins and roots. Um, so my, my mom's side is um, Chinese Canadian with like roots in Canton and Toysan, um, but have lived in, grew up in Vic Vancouver and Victoria, um, like my grandparents and, and the great grandparents generation, Victoria and Vancouver on the West coast. So like early days of Chinese migration to uh, Canada and, and then my, my mom and my mom and all my uncles on my mom's side grew up in Toronto and, um, and spoke like my grandparents spoke Toysan to each other and sent my mom and my uncles to, um, Cantonese school in Toronto and the, and then like my, my mom and my uncles like speak. Uh, understand pretty well and like speak sometimes but mostly like speak back in english and I, I feel like there's like a funny dynamic where like my uncle who is like the most studious and my mom probably like retain the most in chinese school on like saturday school and then my two uncles like i think were goofing off like me and my <laughs> brother I, like understand pretty well but like not as well um 
and then um, my dad grew up in uh, Manila and like spoke so many different languages and like grew up speaking like Tagalog in the street or like in like outside of the home and then um, Fukunese at home. And then he just like picked up all these languages through his life and um, worked in, in Toronto, but also had a lot of work in China. So was using Mandarin time and stuff like that. Um, where was I going with this? Oh, uh, I think I was just gonna, I was going, just gonna mention that um, being in Vancouver for a couple of years was, was interesting for me and just um, getting to reconnect with some of my relatives from my mom's side um in vancouver and victoria and then where what else to catch up on um i don't know ask more questions then. yeah <laughs> I, i'm just really uh, for me what what i heard a lot there was was just the rich linguistic tapestry that you have supporting you um and i don't know I, I I can't imagine. I, I absolutely can't imagine how it must feel um, to have relatives and even close relatives who speak so many different languages than you do. Uh, like for your grandparents, mm-hmm. how was communicating with them? Uh, yeah, how was communicating with them? Yeah, and I I think like again just for. Um, for me and my brother, we, um, definitely were, had that, a common experience of like, not, um, appreciating that growing up and, um, not sort of, uh, I'm going to say taking advantage of, which I don't think is the right phrase, but, um, yeah, I think taking it for granted in a way though, actually, because, um, my grandparents both like speak, um, my, on my mom's side, my grandparents, um, my, my papa was still around and my grandma was passed a couple of years ago, both like spoke English perfectly or not perfectly. Um, again, like air quotes, but spoke mm. English, grew up speaking English and spoke to their kids and spoke to their grandkids in English. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say on my dad's side, it was like, we weren't as close with my grandparents on my dad's side. And I, I'd say actually they, were probably a little bit less comfortable speaking English and they mm-hmm. moved to the States like a bit later in life. But um, long story short, like my brother and I flunked, like failed out of Chinese school. <laughs> <laughs> um, because again, honesty would have been wanted to play basketball more on Saturdays than go to Chinese school. That makes all the sense in the world. <laughs> um, and yeah, so that, that goes, that's like the, <laughs> why I, we were those kids who like didn't appreciate, um, didn't appreciate it at the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, I, I guess, I mean, another one interesting part of it is like my mom and dad, my mom and my dad never spoke Chinese to each other because they spoke different dialects. And my mom like was deaf. My dad like immigrates to Canada in his twenties, but my mom like grew up in Toronto and like had a very, you know, um, like Chinese Canadian experience um, in terms of her influences. So there, there wasn't like a decision to like, let's speak Chinese at home. So that Mark and Jason, Mark being my brother, like learn it. Right. 
So it was just like, we'll send them to Chinese school. <laughs> yeah. And they'll learn it there, which we did not. So, <laughs> And that seems to be a, a fairly common thread uh, with people who go to to school to learn something and don't get it at home. I, I, I mean, I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm kind of speaking out of my ass, but I'm also thinking of my little sister uh, whose mother speaks Mandarin and is still more comfortable with Mandarin than uh, English. But then there's no Mandarin used at home. It's always English at home. And uh, mm. my sister Kira really resisted uh, learning Mandarin uh, at school. And I found it really kind of heartbreaking, actually. And still, I mean, I, I find it quite sad because uh, it cuts her off from it cuts her off from part of her family. She, she can't communicate with part of her family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so can you say that again? And like, what what is so she's 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 learning Mandarin where, and she's speaking English at home. So yeah, everyone speaks English at home except um, so my my so my father is married to a woman from Chongqing, uh, and uh, her name is Sunfei, and she has a, a son named Adam from a previous relationship. And then my father and Sunfei have a child named Kira, who's 25 years younger than me. <laughs> uh, whenever I say it, I laughed. Yeah, she's 25 years younger than me. My, my brother, Adam. Little, little sister. Yeah. yeah, my very little sister. My brother, Adam, is... Adam was born in, in... Grew up, like, his early years in China, right? So um, very early. And then at yeah. two, he came over to Burnaby. And then oh, he's been okay. back and forth. Wow. And he's been back and forth, and he spent pretty much equal time in both countries and to talk to him about his cultural heritage because i mean the reason that i have this podcast is because it's a long-running interest of mine uh like who we are what we're made of um and he really feels almost uh, there's there's ideas about third culture kids who've been raised uh kind of between worlds and that really seems to be true of him because comes from a wealthy family too yeah. which kind of helps with that because you're kind of removed a little bit um and when i say helps it, i mean it, it allows that to happen not that it's a good thing uh but yeah he, he's got the, he kind of feels a little bit alien in both languages uh though uh, yeah. not in english like uh, not in speaking english but he also doesn't feel like because t- i think to him an english speaker is a white person so he he has these kind of complicated mixed loyalties, um, and uh, and right. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, right. And so yeah, and so Kira's pretty much has grown up in in Vancouver, BC context, right? Yeah, with <coughs> a it? totally English context um, around her, except for some Chinese um, yeah. friends yeah. and family. And yeah, her mother doesn't speak Chinese to her. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I think for my dad's, you know, my dad's experience is like unique and for, and foreign to me in the way, right? Where he's like, okay, you're you're in Manila, like there's you're growing up within like a Chinese community, Chinese speaking communities, speaking Fukunese, and that's your family's dialect. So like you speak that, but then you speak, um, you learn and you speak Tagalog and English as well to like interact with everyone in your community. Um, and, you know, I don't think there 
I don't think there's like a, uh, like an opportunity the same way that my brother and I did when there were like, we don't want to learn. <laughs> like, I don't think he ever could have been like, I don't want to learn English or I don't want to learn Tagalog or whatever. Um, but, um, you know, I would have, I would have loved to ask him or just like think about his experience where he, he also, like he, he grew up with those languages and then picked up other ones along the way. Um, because he ended up, he, he spoke like most, he spoke, you know, speaking like French, Spanish, Italian, Portuguese, as well as wow. the ones I previously listed. And I, there was like, there's a bit of like a Brazil connection for outside of my family. Um, so I don't know which ones came, which one, whether Portuguese came first of the, those Romance languages. But um, yeah, just the, for him being like, oh, like I'm going to, you know, um, I'm going to use English. I'm going to move to Canada. I'm going to use English and then I'll like maintain these other languages um, for, uh, yeah, just like the, the motivations is interesting. Right. Where, whereas like for myself and for like your sister Kira, like there's a, there's a default where you can be like, I'm just going to speak English. Cause that's my, like, that's the primary. Um, that's like primarily what's spoken around me. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and to me, that I mean, that's so interesting to to be a polyglot like that to speak that many languages. Uh, that's fascinating because I, I do believe there's a certain adage uh, around language learning that you can't learn a language; you can only become accustomed to a language. So the idea of your father remaining accustomed with this wide variety of languages, uh, it just yeah, it's I, I find it really inspiring to be able to stay in touch with that many different linguistic traditions at one time. Can we talk about your father a little bit? Cause that's another, that's a big connection for us. Um, both having lost parents, uh, in our adolescence. Yeah. And, uh, I know I, I never met your father. Um, I've only heard about him through you, but I, I think of him, or I used to before the pandemic, think of him uh, fairly frequently because uh, my wife and I, we would go to the AGO um, almost every week. And uh, there was a room there uh, designed by your father, who was an architect, uh, I believe. Um, Mm -hmm. And so whenever I would go to that room, and it's this room of statues by who are the statues by uh henry henry moore henry moore yeah the henry, henry moore, moore room yeah. Yeah. yeah um and so there's it's this big high well you can probably describe this better than i can jason my, my architectural vocabulary is pretty poor um but okay my understanding high kind of i'm not sure if this is how what the word vaulted means but i believe vaulted ceilings um yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, with co- kind of a concrete grid pattern happening on the ceiling. Yeah. Um, and it's a large yeah. rectangle of a room. And then right at the end of the room, there's a small... So there's uh, there's one entrance from one wing of the gallery. There's another way out that leads to this 
interesting walkway where the the cafe is at the AGO, uh, which looks kind of like a um, the inside of a wooden whale. To me, to me is what it looks like. This little walkway. Yeah. But yeah. the the Henry Moore room kind of is joined at either side by by those. But then at the very far end of the room, it looks like it's a like a blank wall kind of. Um, but there's a little small foyer or uh, just this tiny little room off the end of this room where there's sometimes a chair and there's a window and I think there's an emergency exit um, but it's one of the very few uh, places you can go in that art gallery to get a moment of uh, alone time or, or silence and it's right off of that room yeah. Anyway, yeah. I, I rambled about that, uh, but uh, yeah. yeah, I just was thinking about yeah about your father. Yeah. Um, no, that's that makes me happy to hear. Um, and um, yeah, because I used to love like when I'm in Toronto, I like I always like going there to the AGO in general, and, and definitely spending a few moments in that room. Um, and. Um, yeah, and and there's there's other like it's not the only thing that reminds me of my dad for sure, but it's nice to have like a physical space or something that um, like that for sure. Um, and that's also just cool to like your your connection to it because um, I f- I feel like just not not to like I, I feel like I've brought lots of people to the AGO and they've come to visit. And not specifically to like show this room that my dad had some <laughs> contribution to, but just like it's, you know, it's always like a great place to to bring people. Um, and um, what was I going to say? I'm I I wish I could have like remembered because you probably only started going there in the past few years, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, but like I've only, I only like knew that it was something that my dad contributed to, like when my mom has told me in the past few years, but I'm, I'm pretty sure they like brought us to the art gallery when we were younger. And, um, cause the, the, that like, is it called the Galleria or something? The, the whales oh, rib cage? I don't know what it's called. Referring yeah. To? <laughs> yeah. I wish I what, could have. Whatever we want to call it. I, I'm sure people are familiar with Toronto, we're talking about, but that's like a, that's like a pretty new, uh, renovation. Right. Mm. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm saying like I'm wondering if you know, but you probably don't. Know. <laughs> I really have no idea. We got to get um, Adam. We'll, we'll get Adam so, on one of these calls, and he'll yeah, be able yeah, to tell us good. all that. That'll be that'll complete the the thread. Um, but I want because I, I, you know, at some point, like the Henry Moore sculpture room existed before the gallery. I'm assuming someone can verify. So I wonder, you know, it's now has like takes on a different character and like flow within the space because of it extension right it might, it might have point. felt more like a, a dead end before right uh-huh. it feels like this weird like interstitial space between this like really huge bright like unique gallery and then the galleria whale's stomach or cage and the other parts of the gallery that you walk that you have to like find your way through if you end up in that side of the space that's um, that's really interesting and then also it's interesting to think about the space and then the art in the space uh, and the way those two interact because it's full of these black and gray uh, sculptures. And uh, that's another reason I, I always think of you when I go there because 
Jason is actually famous, famous among people who know him for his style. Um, really always impeccably dressed, uh, nice outfits, nice clothes, nice shoes. Um, but, but it's always monochromatic. It's always gray. It's always shades of gray. Um, <laughs> sorry, is that fair to say? Am I, am I, am I, it's, fair to, it's correct. Yeah. It's fair to say. Um, I'll connect this back to my dad at some point. Please. Um, you've known me like long enough. Do you remember when I used to wear like <laughs> colors? Yeah. I remember, you remember that? I remember some bright colors. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wearing a colored, I'm wearing mostly gray and I'm wearing one color t-shirt right now, which is, which is usually that might be something that I still do these days. Your accent um, piece. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> because I feel like in the first years of Miguel, when when we met, I know we probably only met in like second year, third year, whatever. Something like that, yeah. It's probably second year. Um, but I used to like was like very into like still like wearing a lot of basketball jerseys. Very into LRG, true <laughs> <laughs> brand. What a time. Um, but also like, but and like wore like a lot of bright colors, but like always had to match them. Like if they didn't. If the colors didn't match me, I would like, I just, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't wear them together. And now I just wear gray all the time. So everything's easy. <laughs> so that's a secret. But yeah. You've heard me tell the story, but you, I don't think we were friends yet when like I was in first year um, biology in the 600 person lecture and they were explaining um, different, you know, like genetic inheritance. Oh, there we go. Nice. <laughs> um, about, like um color uh like color blindness specifically like red green color um deficiency as like one you know it's like a good example like that helps you learn um <laughs> recessive genes and stuff which i forget now but um they um and you know the first you know you learn about fruit flies and like plants and then and then they put on they on the slide show they they show like some of the different color blindness tests, which is usually um, like a bunch of circle blobs um, of similar shades of color. And then um, most people will be able to see like a number or like a smiley face in the, <laughs> in the circle blob. And if you are have some degree of color blindness for the specific shades that are up there, like you won't be able to see it. So everyone's like, oh yeah, I can see 55. And you're just like, I can't see anything. <laughs> And that's how, like, I found out that I have probably have some, I have some, some level of red, green color, <laughs> um, which is, uh, yeah, which is common, which is more common in men and male chromosome people. Um, although I did like do a more precise test at one point and I feel like I got like 12 out of 13 on it. So Anyway, but I, I feel like through those university years was slow was was when color faded from my wardrobe. When color faded from your wardrobe, that's beautiful. That's poetic. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I love that story about you discovering <laughs> discovering color blindness yeah. in a six hundred person lecture. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, yeah. So to connect to my dad. <laughs> Yeah, how are you going to do that? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm excited no, to watch this. I'm just like, I'm just like, how do I, how do I segue into this? Um, I think like, well, I would say like, I'm just, how do I remember my dad dressing is what I was going to say. And then also, um, 
yeah, how do I like sort of last remember him? But he, um, he was never like a flashy guy, but I'd say like his like, um, like when my brother and I were going through those like streetwear phases, <laughs> I think he was confused as most <laughs> probably would have been. But um, I feel like he liked like you know. I don't, I don't know. I have to like look back at the younger photos of him too, but like, you know, his casual, he'd like wear like Ralph Lauren polo sometimes and just, it'd be like, for him, it was like, like a small logo is okay. But like, why do you have like this humongous, like banner on your chest? <laughs> um, he didn't actually say that explicitly. It wasn't like he was trying to police what we were or anything, but it was just like different styles. And then, um, and yeah, he was an architect. So he was like working in downtown Toronto and just, you know, wearing a suit to the office pretty much every day. Um, and um, I guess, you know, you know, just to like hit on the sort of the gendered dynamics of things, but like he, you know, had his tie collection that he liked and definitely some patterns in there. Um, some which like I liked and some which like I think were, were out there. <laughs> Not a, I wouldn't say they're missed because, you know, it's all context time specific, but um <laughs> And then, um, and then I feel like like something that I still sort of do as like that accent piece is like he um, he might have like the pink dress shirt or like the light purple dress shirt or something like that. I feel like I do that sometimes mm. as my to go with the grace. So um, yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm just actually remembering like so when so he, my dad passed away when I was 13 and. Um, all these different moments that I remember he passed away of, of cancer after like a year or so of treatment and stuff with it. But um, yeah, my, my uncles, like my mom obviously went through a ton and then my uncles were there to like support and try and like help through all these like funeral things and whatever. I remember my uncle Bobby like would, was helping like pick out suits and stuff that we'd bury him in. And I'm like pretty sure he picked out like a pink dress shirt, but I, I would, I'm, I'll ask him and I'm sure he'll remember because he always remembers stuff like that. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the, that's how I brought it all back. <laughs> Congratulations on the, pulling the that. Dark, the gray, um, the gray Henry Moore sculptures, into my gray wardrobe to the, the flashes of color. Um, I thought you were going to say, cause like Henry Moore sculptures, I'm definitely not the expert. So, you know, when you get Adam on, but I feel like there's also like a lot of those sculptures are from like influenced, like they're like heavily like World War II influence, World War One or something mm-hmm. like that. Because like a lot of them, like the the figures are like, I just know like some of the figures or some of the figures that he made were like people like shielding themselves from like you know like um, bomb blast or whatever. I think uh. that's not like that's not like the whole theme of his work. Because some are definitely just like female figures reclining but i think there's some that are like a little bit darker in that sense oh i i never noticed the the figures poses i think i think i was caught on the colors and the shapes to a certain extent and i i found them in inhuman to a large to a large extent so i i didn't really focus on the the human story there but yeah we need to adam the adam we referred to adam levine um a curator at the AGO and a friend of ours. Uh, and yeah, we're going to get him on here and we're going to ask him some questions about this to find out. I want to go back, if yeah. you don't mind, 
to to the question of inheritance again um and you tell me if this is not comfortable or, or good to talk okay. about um because i know <clears throat> yeah let me think about how to how to say this when i talk to i have a younger cousin whose name is hunter and it's not hunter hunter because people ask that sometimes <laughs> Uh, Hunter Samuel. It's, it's, that'd be great. Uh, but uh, my cousin Hunter, we talk about, he, he lost his mother when he was, I believe he was 13 when he lost his mother. Uh, and then he lost his father when he was 14 or 15, about a year later. And uh, we talk sometimes about, about the... Uh, about identity and and what it means to have suffered a significant loss at a formative age and what that means for your identity because i think for him there's a yeah i'm a little bit scared about misrepresenting him here but i think there's some kind of resistance to being identified as the orphan kid um Mm. for for yourself and i could also talk about this with with myself too i lost my home when i was 14 um for yourself do you do you feel that there's a um a tension with your identity around around uh around that that traumatic event right yeah no um no it's a good question like you know I also, I feel like you and I have like gotten so close through sharing our experiences, but I also can't like imagine what, you know, your cousin Hunter, like losing both his parents. Right. Um, I think that, I guess the thing that I would say about it is, um, so yeah, I mean, I guess it's part of, it's part of my story for sure. Right. And then it's always a question of like, if I'm, if it comes up or I've, I'm wanting to share that story, like it, 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 it's up to me and like wh- when I, when and how I want to share. And, um, I guess the funny thing that I'm reflecting on now, um, it's around that way. So, um, you know, so when I, so back when like I was first doing this sexual health education, this will, this will make sense. Don't worry. <laughs> Um, back when I was first like doing my training and onboarding and like getting to, to like, um, learning about how to navigate these conversations with, with youth co and this like great team of, of other, um, peer sexual health educators, we would like, you know, we'd be like sharing our stories and like learning and relating to how the material we were doing. And, um, and, um, yeah, and we were just like, on like, unpacking stuff around gender and like usually yeah i mean definitely through most of the years i was there i was like in the minority as like a cisgendered guy dude doing these um doing the workshops and and doing sexual health education with this particular group and um for me like for me growing up and then like coming to this more queer positive space like i was like learning new language around gender pronouns for the first time right like that had never come up for me before right mm. and um i think there's like there's like again for for 
people who are in queer relationships, there's like a signaling of like, do you want to say, like, how do you want to like describe your partner, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what pronouns do they use? And also, do you want to like, do you want to share that, um, share your personal, like, your your gender and sexual orientation to like this person that you're just telling a story about, right? Yeah. Um, so hopefully this makes sense to people. It's sort of like, to, to put it more specifically, it's like, um, now, like having been with my partner for many years, I refer to her, her as my partner, and that signals something to people, right? But at a time that, that for some people, that's like, oh, like, does that mean he's his part? He's like, he's gay and he's in his partner is, um, is a guy, right? And he's not calling his partner, girlfriend or boyfriend, right? Like that, that's one confusing thing. Um, or that, that's like one like signifier, right? Um, which is interpreted differently by different people in different contexts. And then there's like the, the pronouns that you use, right? Mm-hmm. So to, to frame it back to why I brought this up, um, I, and just recently, like I just had, was in an interaction like this very recently. Actually, um, I feel like I, I'll say, like, I'll, you know, I'll be saying something about my father, my dad, and I'll be like, my dad was an architect. Mm. And I guess that's like so unhelpful to people now because like they probably just assume he's retired. This <laughs> <laughs> is like it feels like morbid, but it's fine. Um, but I'm trying to say like my dad's passed away and he was an architect when he was alive. Is that weird? Do you do anything like that? Is that am I like? I'm, I'm just as I'm saying it out loud. I'm like this is so unhelpful. In <laughs> so no, I, I actually like, cause naturally because like I feel like it. It's like the second they'll say something and they're like. And they'll they'll ask a question that's like presumes that my dad is still around, mm. and then I have to then I have to follow it up with like oh and like he, yes he he like helps like design the anymore room but also he he passed away when I was thirteen right and then it's like oh I'm sorry I'm like yeah, it's fine like, <laughs> or it's it happened like thanks for saying thanks for saying that but um yeah so that that's like that's like the dance of signaling it oh yeah and um. And, um, and I, it's never like, it's, uh, it's not, it's never a big deal for me anymore to, to share that, share that because I'm, I'm probably want to share that in some degree. If I'm telling a story about my dad, like that's obviously a big part of probably whatever, some element of why it came up in conversation, but, mm. um, yeah, but now that I'm saying it out loud, it's like, it sounds silly, but how else would I navigate that as opposed to being like, it doesn't sound silly to me. And, and now I'm going to tell you this, this. So, so now that you have that context, <laughs> I can tell you this like small anecdote that was related to some other <laughs> conversation, right? Yeah. And that's the better way to eat people. Into that. <laughs> uh, it's so funny. I, I, so one thing, I think the line between, something that's funny and something that's sad is really thin. Um, and uh, so that story is very funny. And also in some ways it's sad to me. Uh, it brings up feelings of sadness, not for you. It just brings up feelings of sadness tied to my own experience with that. Uh, yeah. The, I, I just want to say the, the story you used to introduce that, I thought that was, you, you, you were kind of making fun of yourself while you were doing it because it was kind of circuitous. But I thought it was a really beautiful way to talk about uh 
the well, the the dance in English and in, in any language, but we're working in English. The, the dance of communicating what you want to communicate without communicating what you don't want to communicate, without giving any, yeah. anything away that you're not wanting to give away in that moment. And I think that's that's something that people who belong to the hegemonic group, and there's many hegemonic groups, yeah. right? Um, English speakers, giant hegemonic group, uh, and then men, another big hegemonic group. Um, but he- hegemonic speakers often aren't aware of this issue with language. And I think it's why there's so much... Um, I'm actually not totally sure why there is so much vitriol against... Um, gender pronoun issues because mm. I'll talk more about that at some point actually uh, MJ and I um, a good friend we were talking about that a little bit and it's a big issue in Canada um, with someone like Jordan Peterson uh, saying what he does and uh, being such a virulent transphobe yeah. so uh, I really appreciate that story as a way of talking about yeah how do I communicate what I want to communicate without communicating anything that I don't want to communicate. And and reasons for not wanting to communicate can be so varied, right? One is, oh, I don't feel safe communicating that. Another is, yeah. I don't want you to have that information. There's there's a million different reasons why. Um, but I think that story really tells about it. And then the issue of tense yeah, with the dead. That. Well, I, I really liked it, so I'm, thank you for telling it. Yeah, yeah. But the tense issue is a really big one. I've written about this before. Um, the my mother is, my mother was kind of thing. And how, for me, the thing was, uh, maybe n- now the was thing, uh, I don't think about it that much. But uh, right after she died, I had trouble moving into referring to her in the past tense immediately. Mm, yeah. I found that so strange to uh, to do that. Um, and it's not exactly what you were talking about, but um, it made me think of it. And uh, that's still it's still a bit of a struggle because I guess not everyone. Yeah, our our tenses are are interesting. Uh, Their tenses are not the same in every language, right? English has its own set of rules. Um, I don't really have anywhere to go with that, but I, I just I, I do find it difficult to relegate someone to the past because I, I also don't really believe I don't really believe in a, a kind of past in that sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I, I, I'm being quite quite vague? But I, I no, I, yeah. I mean it just makes me wish that that this language English or there was. Um, more language so like <laughs> uh um it just yeah it makes you it makes me kind of wish there was more language but maybe it's better that it's we have these vague ways of signifying because like would it be weird if there was like a specific um tense that was like this person has passed away wow that's so interesting yeah that's imagine weird. what kind of language what That'd kind of different. circumstance would that come from like what kind of people would have a language like that that's i mean that's a beautiful yeah. idea yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, because like, uh, is it you? Have you read Kurt Vonnegut's stuff? Like, I think it's Slaughterhouse Five that yeah. has the aliens who like 
have everything happens all at once. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, I feel like that's a common, that's, that is sometimes a common, maybe, I don't know if you popularized it, but that device, like, just, yeah, those, the different ways of looking at time. Um, <laughs> let's, let's think, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm going to think on that, like whether it would be helpful or unhelpful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Better signifier. How did I, can you remember now how I described my grandparents like just a few minutes, not well, like at the beginning of this conversation? Cause I was, was trying to, I think I said like my grandmother who's still around and my grandfather who's passed. Yeah. I and think just like, it's easier to like slip that into conversation when you're talking to your grandparents. Oh, that's so, so true. Um, yeah. And there's no, because the issue is, well, I'm not sure. Uh, I'll tell you, my issue is often other people's reaction. Um, it's not like the telling itself. It's there's a strange mix of, I, I mean, death is not a topic. Again, this, this goes back to my thesis about denial, because um, I do believe that we live in a death-denying culture. And death is not a, a polite subject of conversation, and people seem, and who knows how much of this is my own projection, but people seem embarrassed when death is brought into the room through language. Yeah. And uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, totally, yeah. I think it would be, be interesting if you get a chance to talk to people about anyone, you know, or be able to talk to someone who's, like, lost a child or, like, abortion or miscarriage or things right I, I feel like there's you know increasingly more conversations about that but um but again like what language does a, a, someone, a parent who lost child like put to that experience right yeah um yeah and i, I also <laughs> just... another, another tough topic but but if you do <laughs> ask them what they want <laughs> I, I think it's a great idea. I, I want to do it now that you've mentioned it. I also think, yeah, there is there there is experience outside of language, and I find that somewhat hopeful. Mm. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I didn't really believe that when I was younger, um, but here I am, all withered off of DMT, and uh, I really do believe it now. <laughs> um, yeah. so, so we've been on here for a while, and I don't want to take your whole day. Uh, but before we go, could we talk a little bit about facilitation? And, and this is going to go back, if you're okay with it, if you're ready to move yeah. the conversation on. Um, yeah. Because we were talking about Next Gen Men earlier, and uh, yeah. one of the last times I saw Jason was about two years ago. Time is so difficult. <laughs> um, but around that... Uh, yeah. And... and, and Jason and his partner were both in Toronto and Jason's partner, Connie was at this um, uh, workshop or lecture about land acknowledgements, which was really cool. Um, she talked to us a little right. bit about that. That was so interesting. And then Jason was among other things, they're facilitating a next gen men circle, which were these, which are these, I put it in the past because I haven't been going to them, I haven't been going anywhere, um, these regular meetups for, uh, not just for men, but maybe especially for men, uh, in which there was a space to talk about 
gendered issues um, and receive a lot of support. It reminded me in some ways of uh, an AA meeting um, in the sense that there was it was a non-judgmental space and topics that might be taboo in other places could be broached fairly easily there. And uh, Jason was there taking pictures, helping out, and uh, there was a bit of an issue during at one point during the circle. Um, do you remember this? Do you want to talk about it or do you want me to, to set it up? Yeah, um, I remember it and I feel like you remember it potentially better than me. So you should set it up. You should Ooh, okay. Set it uh, so there was, there were two participants in the group and um, see, I don't remember it that well. So uh, I'm going to flounder. Yeah. If you want to jump in and save me at any point, please do. But I'll, I'll do my best. So there was okay. this. And also, like, I yeah. feel like it's a tricky thing. I mean, I feel, I feel like we're talking very freely about our friends, which I'm sure is fine. Ah, maybe we um, shouldn't talk about this specific issue. Good idea. So let's say there was an issue at the meeting. We yeah. won't talk about the specifics of the issue. But what I was really impressed with was how you handled the situation in the moment and afterwards. Um, and in the moment, I think mostly you were asking questions to clarify what was going on. And then afterwards, it seemed like you went and checked in with both participants. Um, could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. And I, I forget how I reacted right in the moment, to be honest. Mm. But, um, but um, yeah, I mean, I guess to set the scene... I don't know. <laughs> That's what I mean to. Um, but yeah, it was like a relatively small group, right? Like maybe 10 or 15 of us. Mm -hmm. And um, just again, this like open sharing. I, I actually completely forget what the topic was because we usually, we still do usually have like a theme or a topic for the Next Gen Circle meetings or meetups. And um, I completely forget what Me it too. was now. Who knows? Not important. Um, but um but yeah, I do remember um, trying to figure out how to navigate the f like checking in and following up in a in a good way. Um, firstly, because I actually forget why I was in Toronto, why Tani and I were in Toronto that trip because it's usually like since I've lived we've lived in New York, it's usually like it'll be like a family thing or something other thing. And I'll, then I'll like try and pitch in on next gen men stuff if it makes sense. Um, so I feel like that was probably the case. Um, but just, you know, knowing like there's, there's regular people who, who come to those, who come to the next one circle meetups. And then there's regular like facilitators and supporters and which is not me because I was just like making a guest cameo appearance. Um, so I think I was trying to figure out how to like, how to, um, check in and follow up on that issue in a good way. And I think I partly did it by email or probably like Facebook messenger and partly try to address it in the moment. So just, uh, so I, I, I guess... I think I cut off your question or I've lost you. No, 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 don't worry. <laughs> um, <laughs> what I want to talk about here is facilitation. And I was impressed by the way you dealt with that because you, to me, it seemed like you followed up and made sure that the people involved were okay and not just the situation. Because... Yeah, I, I see lots of people managing situations, but I don't see people uh -huh. regularly checking in with people to make sure that they're they're good. 
and that they know what's happening yeah. and, and and so that was what impressed me about it and th that's what i wanted to ask you about like and this is not really a question I, I guess what i'm asking is how do you facilitate what are your what are your guiding principles yeah like how did you know to do that what what do you generally do like all of that kind of thing is, is i guess what i'm trying to get at yeah 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 totally um yeah i think about i guess how do i facilitate and what do i why do, what do i think about it um it's like it's a pretty helpful universal skill and framework for me and like in 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 so many parts of my life and then it it feels like there's always like sometimes a time when it times when it's like oh this is clearly something this is like a formalized facilitation thing right like leading a workshop or like helping you know support a group like through learning about something right and um which like the next men's circle are more of i guess like could yeah i feel like i could talk about this forever for me like i, I think a big part of my skill and skill like learning in this area came from from youth co the sexual health group um came from like communities of um facilitators that some are vancouver based and toronto based that come from like a similar world of like um youth education youth empowerment um creative facilitation world um like apart some of the some of the really formative trainings which um jamal and i did together for next gen was with um, a group called Partners for Youth Empowerment, PYE. Um, and um, one thing that I always like really took from that PYE training is like trying to like create the container for a group um, to work through something and to learn something like you just, it can be for for so many different purposes, right? Like, like facilitation comes up in like very like work process type things. It also comes in like support group type things, right? and um and organizing and things like that and just like one frame and skill set for facilitators like to create the container for that group um to come together have some structure um and one thing i also really liked from pye is like thinking about the arc of a group dynamic where similar to like you as an interviewer like as you said like easing things in right like easing people into things and um, finding ways to like close a particular session or whatever um, group dynamic in like a good way. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's like, there's a lot of like designing, designing that comes up. That's like comes in the prep. Like there, you have to prepare first of all. And, um, and then you have to like, then there's like a lot of like, uh, I was gonna say thinking on your feet, but like, um, uh, I think uh, maybe one other way to think about facilitation is um, just like putting, make, creating like a binary, which is maybe not helpful between like lecturing or like teaching someone like that's more. Is it didactic, like the one way? Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, I think the, the goal of facilitators always like to create space for people to share and like think through and like share their experiences, mm. which obviously like great teachers do as well. But um, it's again, it's sort of different from like 
this like one way leadership style of like, I'm going to tell you this thing or I'm going to make this decision. Right. Mm -hmm. Can um, I ask just before we keep going? Yeah. I want to, I want to know more about the container because that's such a, that's a phrase that I've heard or a, a word that I've heard used a lot by therapists, psychologists, facilitators, and I guess I've never fully understand uh, understood what what the container is. Like, what is this? What does the container refer to? Yeah, uh, I think for me, if I had to like, don't have like a definitive answer, but I think it's um, whether it's like a one on one thing, like it could, you know, in therapy or something like that, or like a, a bigger group thing, like a big group thing. Even it's like setting i think it's like i would say it's like setting some ground rules and structure for people mm. in like ways to show up the other the other like language but like principle that i liked a lot from like facilitators that i learned from is like offering people uh -huh. so um giving people like that's again it's like the easing in thing right like if you're trying to have a conversation with someone and like get to some like you know some depth and stuff you're not going to like dive into that 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 right away like you'll offer something and see if they uh if that person or group wants to like engage with that right and then if you um if uh if, if you have the group dynamic and you are setting up in the right way like you can sort of like progress through and like move to those different topics and like um kind of like build that arc in a way uh, and it's um there's kind of um to me i see some principles of kind of consent in there where you aren't jumping mm -hmm. into the deep end. You're working your way yeah, totally. and, yeah. and giving people the option of engaging with what they see fit. Is, is that kind of, is, is that kind of the idea or some of the idea of what you're yeah, saying? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Like uh, consents in like a very broadly, like the broadest, in a broad sense is like has to be like a critical part of facilitation um for just like the sake of like consent for the sake of it but also like cons like consent for the sake of like creating a container creating like a group dynamic that's like that works for people right mm. um and um yeah because I, I mean just think about like if you're doing your teacher like the group and there's there's like those the kids who like don't want to participate are like kids who are like too shy to participate or like kids who like talking all the time like it's like an offering being like is there some way that you want to engage in this group right like you might be the quiet kid and not want to speak up but like is there a way that you just want to like be with the group and listen right like that's mm -hmm. like an offering right yeah um what was i gonna say i mean i think i you already brought up i think consent was a huge part i think just to 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 fast forward rewind to the anecdote that you brought up um it's always uh, facilitating by oneself is is doable um and sometimes at least for me like sometimes comfortable and more comfortable but facilitating with other people is like always who who have like a facilitator's mindset and skill set is like always like a joy to me and, mm. and because like a because i can learn something from seeing other people facilitate and support groups and also because you have support in that and um 
especially with like a bigger group and like this, you know, just the, that example you brought up of a group where like something happens that it would benefit from being addressed, like having a second or third or more people to like address that. Mm. Um, I think like serves a group, like can be a way to like address harm when it happens and, and support and check in. Right. Cause if you're the one person, like, I don't know, just that it makes me think of like teachers and like student ratios, right? Like if you're like, one teacher to like 30 kids like you're not going to be able to like know everything that's happening with that whole group right oh man yeah Um, that's impossible yeah but if you have a smaller class size or you have like multiple teachers or support people then like you can take time to like check in support like engage different different people in different ways in groups so that's um just back to the anecdote for one second because that was one thing i noticed is you weren't leading the session. Someone else was kind of posing most of the questions. Uh, what I noticed you doing was you were passing the baton in conversation and you were checking in on people and making sure they were okay as things were going um, and afterwards. Uh, so that's interesting that, I, I mean, I, I guess whoever was leading the session was also facilitating the session. But you were doing very different, yeah, different types of facilitation. Yeah, and um, I guess the other thing. Well, this is like interesting to like other people too. Feels <laughs> like um, I don't know, but um, I think the other you know I alluded to like an AA support group. Um, I mean, yeah, I don't want to generalize as well because I, I feel like support groups can be run in so many different ways too, but. I think as like a facilitator too, you have to um, like what you're saying about passing the baton, like facilitating with the group, like sometimes the group can just like run with it. If it's a group that's like knows each other and has that comfort level. Other times, like the facilitator has to like say the prompts, the questions that like keep the conversation going and like, um, you know, that offering that someone will take them up and share something. Mm-hmm. And also, like, as a facilitator, like, with an extra men, for example, right? Like, if the theme is, who knows, like, friendship, sex, relationships, or whatever, like, I want to engage in that topic, too, for my own benefit, right? Like, I probably want to share my own stories or, like, have space to get support around things. But um, as a facilitator, you have to, like, think about, is what I'm sharing, like, useful to the group or is it just useful to me? Mm. And sort of, like try to try to like lean on like sharing things that are like useful to the group if that makes sense Mm. the same way that like we're having conversation now and like i know like if i was more of the interviewer i'd probably be asking you more questions about like your mom's fasting and stuff like that but you're like you're just sort of like throwing things back to me to like (laughs) personally like keep us on topic (laughs) um but for us to like to you know, move through the conversation, you know, and like that dynamics, like different, if it's like a therapeutic relationship, if it's like a big group, small group purpose, you know, structure of different groups. But I don't know. I think that's something that I usually like try and keep in the back of my mind. I mean, like, what am I sharing right now? And is it, is it um, helping like the group dynamic or could it hopefully ideally? Mm. I'm really interested in the idea of what, what, what helps and what doesn't help because 
I noticed, I mean, I noticed you doing that. I, I noticed that um, the things you said tended to open up the conversation rather than shut it down. But if you had to ask, if you asked me, we've got a little siren going here. Um, if you asked me what a conversation, what a, what a, what something that opens up the conversation is, versus what something that closes the conversation is, it's really hard to say. Like, it's hard to say, oh, well, this kind of thing opens up the conversation. This kind of thing closes it down. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 we could talk about this. I think we could talk about this for a long time because there's, among other things you mentioned, there's the role. Like, you know, we're just two people talking on the phone. We were talking on the phone a few minutes before we started this. But then when we're doing this, I'm playing the role of interviewer and you're playing the role of interviewee and that changes the, the timber of the conversation and how we both behave in the conversation it's really amazing to me the way that uh we are so adaptable and um, human humans I, I mean not you and me particularly so adaptable and able to adjust ourselves to so many different situ social situations so that makes me think uh that makes me take to heart more what you're saying about design the importance of design and forethought in facilitation and i, I mean this is actually really going to help me with the show going forward i I, re I really appreciate this um because yeah one of my first interviews I mean, i'm not sure if i'm going to keep this in but one of my first interviews with, was with another friend who i'm very close with but we kind of went into very deep and tricky stuff quite quickly mm. And the conversation kind of dried up through that. Um, and talking to you, I see that yeah, the the structure wasn't wasn't there. It wasn't a safe enough structure. Um, we went in a mm. little too hard, and I think both of us got a bit spooked. Um, but this, I, I mean, your advice is going to help going forward. Thank you so much. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's, I think it's interesting, like, you're, you're leaning into, like, this, like, interview skill, right? Mm. And there's clearly, like, threads of facilitation in there, too, right? And, like, I think, like, to be honest, honestly, like, I'm most comfortable in, like, facilitating, like, small group, you know, learning, right? I mm. think that's just because, like, that was the model and format that, like, most, this, most of my relevant experience came from, like, from YouthCo, from, like, doing the stuff in, in Jamaica from, and then like being able to do that in with next gen men and then like other work settings that I've been in. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, yeah. And, that, and that's just like one format, right? Like there's like, I feel like some similar or overlapping ideas and principles and skills are useful to like, therapy to like interviewing someone for a podcast or like if you're like a journalist probably trying to like extract information um <laughs> or but like it it also like it like there are sort of like meta things that we would think about for next gen men in the same way and this was again this is like an idea that came from the facilitators that i learned from it's like the same principles of like having an hour-long conversation or group meeting should could apply to like in next gen men if we were running like an eight week after school program right mm. which was like as simple as like 
I mean, I, there's there's different camps about what the right approach is about, like how to approach, like for for next gen like men and feminism, men and patriarchy, like same like same principles. That, like, how do you want to talk about to white people about white supremacy? Uh, pros and cons of being like come to this meeting about like white supremacy <laughs> versus like which is which is not you know so for the next time I'd be like come to this meeting about like sexual violence or like rape culture or like the patriarchy or whatever right and like and there's groups who do that successfully mm. um, but I think people who are primed for that conversation and like the boys in our youth program at like 12 to 13 years old like they their the, in, the offering is like literally is more of like the fun after school program and like a space to like you know connect with like a mentor right mm. um, a role model and the first um there's like there's like a building up over like the eight weeks of the or eight or ten weeks of an after school program that like getting into personal stuff getting into like thinking about relationships and sexual violence and stuff like that right mm. and uh we would probably like scare them off if we like if we <laughs> branded but also like designed our program in a way that like really self you know that would self-select people out so yeah that's such a good point um, because so yeah those, so there's like there's like different camps and like opinions about whether that's good or bad but um that's like i was just gonna say that yeah like i mean facilitate those principles like come to like running a huge conference or like you know all these different formats and modalities of like people groups coming together. Like my book, Tani like is thinking about it all the time in her design work too. Right. Um, so yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was a long point, but yeah. No, no, I, I, I love that. And I, I think, uh, yeah, there's the issue of getting people in the door and then you can't just bait and switch them or they're, I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we were just talking about consent. Like, so, so the idea of this progression into, more uncomfortable waters and support because mm-hmm. you talked about how, how important it is to have other facilitators. And uh, I, I mean, ideally through the format, the other participants become co-facilitators, um, but maybe they don't know that initially. Um, and that, that comes with time. Anyway, I, I, I want to thank you. You've given up, you've given me so much, so much of your time this afternoon. Um, is there anything any any things you want to share? Anything you didn't get to talk about that you wanted to? Yeah, no, this is great. Um, I um, am, will continue to think a lot about uh, all those different threads and like. <laughs> I don't know if I'm. A, I'll probably just. I'm, I'm, I wonder if I'll overthink the next time I have to tell a story about my dad, or maybe I'll just be more perceptive and like try and suss out how people react. <laughs> I feel like I want to. I need to like. I need to, uh, I'm not going to do it because I'm such a, I was going to say shy person, but I'm like, I should start a story with like, when my dad died. (laughs) (laughs) And that's, and that to answer your question about, you know, like, no, but the story I was literally telling recently was about like my cat. And it, it, the origin story is, is with my dad's passing. So like, it, it's hard for me to tell that story. About it, so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That's so hard to uh, tell that without, yeah, it, it goes, the past is present. Uh, I mean, uh, I think yeah. that comes back from what we were talking about earlier. And, uh, I had one thing I wanted to say from what you said. Uh, 
I just remembered, yeah, when I was in high school, when we were in high school, your mom jokes really popular back then. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, we deal with these things in our own way. Uh, and I remember yeah. that I would kind of really enjoy dropping the card of my mother's death in response to your mom joke uh, which is like honestly quite (laughs) when i think back on it quite cruel uh and weirdly emotionally manipulative but back then it was kind of like a i I had a lot of fun doing it um so yeah we're we're all navigating this in our own ways is what I, i guess i'm saying yeah All right, Jay. Well, thank All you right. so much for coming on the show. Let's leave it on that. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. Great. I'm grateful for your voice. I'm grateful for your presence. I'm grateful you're my friend. Love you so much. Uh, one uh-huh. second here. 